to open your Bibles to the book of Colossians, chapter 1. And looking through the Gospels as a whole, there are really only a few passages of Scripture, only a handful of chapters that directly deal with the incredible majesty of the birth of Christ and the telling of the Christmas story, if you will. But the reality of that event is sprinkled out through the entire Bible. And so in thinking about delivering a message that would be out of the norm in terms of what you would expect in the Gospel of Matthew or in Luke, we're going to look in Colossians chapter 1, specifically verses 15 through 20, and deal with the question, who is Jesus? As I think about that question, you know, there are many, many people out there in our world who see the baby Jesus in a manger and they don't have any issue with that. But that baby grew up, didn't he? That baby assumed his rightful role as the Lord and as the Savior of the universe that he created. And so while there may not be a lot of problem or challenge with the baby Jesus, we must remember that Christmas is not about the manger, but it is about the deity of Christ. Who is Jesus? It's a question that has been asked since his birth in Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago. The question was asked during his ministry. It was asked during his public trials. It was asked at his crucifixion. And it's being asked still today. People want to know, who is Jesus? How one answers that question is the most significant answer one will ever give because our eternal destiny hangs in the balance of how we answer that. Not with an intellectual or an academic agreement, but an affirmation of the reality that He is the Lord and that He is the Savior. And how I answer the question about who Jesus is will affect my relationship with Him and by that, our eternal destiny. All around the world, people are finalizing their preparations for their Christmas celebration. Big meals, piles of presents and joyous times gathered with those that we love. But sadly, most will miss the true meaning of this most important event in all of human history, that God became man. And they will continue their journey, ignorant of the truth, destined for an eternal separation from God. Well, the Bible is first and foremost the book about the Lord Jesus Christ, affirming who He is, celebrating what it is he has done and how we as man can rightly relate to this person that has been so clearly told to us. The Old Testament records the preparation for his coming. The Gospels present him as God in human flesh, coming to the world to save sinners. In the book of Acts, the message of salvation in Christ is being spread throughout all of the world. The epistles detail the theology of Christ's work and the personification of Christ in His body, us, the church. Finally, the book of Revelation presents Christ on the throne, reigning as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so the reality is, is that every part of Scripture testifies about Jesus Christ. If you remember when Jesus 
after his resurrection and his ascension, was walking on the road to Emmaus. We have this recorded in the book of Luke, chapter 24, verse 27. The beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he, Jesus, explained to them, those that he was traveling with on the road to Emmaus, the things concerning himself in all the Scripture. While talking with the Jews and explaining to them who he was, as we'll look in a few weeks, John chapter 5, Jesus says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, this academic or this intellectual ascent. It is these that testify about me. Jesus had no misconception about what the Scripture said about him. He clearly portrayed it. And because of that, his life was taken from him because the very people, his own people, the nation of Israel whom he came to save, rejected him and instead sought to kill him. And all that the Bible says about the person, Jesus Christ, it has been said by some that this little passage we're going to look at today is perhaps the most significant teaching in the Bible about the identity and the deity of Jesus Christ, and it most succinctly answers the question, who is Jesus? Look with me in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of, blood of His cross. Through Him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So as we ask ourselves this question, who is Jesus? Our passage of Scripture will answer that with six key descriptions about who Jesus is. The first one is very simply, He is the image of God. That is exactly what the first part of verse 15 clearly portrays to us, is that He is the image of the invisible God. We know that God is spirit. We know that God is invisible. We know that God said to Moses, no man has ever seen me or ever will see me because in the day he sees me, he will die. But the nation of Israel saw him as a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud in the daytime. Isaiah saw the train of his robe fill the temple and he knew that he was in the presence of God. But no one has ever seen this invisible God. But if you want to know what God looks like, then you simply look at Jesus Christ because he is the image of of the invisible God. That word image is the Greek word icon, and it means likeness. In Paul's day, in first century Christianity, that icon represented a statue or an imprint on a coin. 
we know and we celebrate in the truth that man is created in the likeness of God, in the image of God, but we are a very imperfect reflection of who God is. We have rational personality. Like God, we possess intellect, emotion, and will by which we are able to think and feel and choose. But we are not However, in the image morally of God, because He is holy and we are wholly sinful. We are created in the likeness of God, but Jesus Himself is the exact image of God. We are human, not divine, and so Jesus is the exact representation, the perfect manifestation of who God is. And if you want to ask yourself, what does God look like? Then you look at the person of Jesus Christ. You know, we don't have cameras from first century Christianity. Some people have done a commendable job of painting or creating pictures of what Jesus looks like. He was Jewish. He wasn't the fair-haired and light-skinned Caucasian that most of us are familiar with. We don't know what He looks like, but we know what He is like because the Bible tells us who He is. Jesus did not become the image of God at His incarnation, but He has always been the image of God from eternity past. The writer of Hebrews would say this, He is the radiance of His glory, of God's glory, and the exact representation of His God's nature, and upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You see, the writer of Hebrews understood that Jesus was the exact representation of God the Father. He is God in the flesh. Jesus will say in John 14.9, as we'll look at several weeks down the road, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Now, when we read those words, we either have to agree, or we say Jesus was mistaken. He had been deceived. He was trying to pull the wool over the eyes of His followers. Either Jesus is telling the truth about who He is, or He is not. Jesus Himself professed to be the Father in the sense that they are one and the same. The invisible God that no man has ever seen has become visible in the person of Jesus Christ. By using the word icon here, Paul is saying that Jesus is the perfect resemblance and representation of God. You know, I've got three kids. They're all here today. You can look at my kids and you say, yeah, there's some resemblance of you in your children. Sorry, I can't do much about that. I didn't have any say in the matter. But when you look at Jesus, you say He is an exact representation. He is actually God Himself. Number two, He is the firstborn over all creation. Let me tell you, this little phrase in verse 15 has created significant confusion and controversy throughout all of Christendom for hundreds and hundreds of years. Many will wrongly conclude from this phrase that it is saying that Jesus is actually a created being. That's what a lot of the Christian 
cults would say. I use the word Christian there loosely. They profess to be, yet they don't ascribe to Jesus full deity. So this little phrase that he is the firstborn over creation has created a lot of challenge. In fact, it was circulated in the early days. In fact, in 325 A.D., the church council, the church fathers, finally put to rest the notion that Jesus was not fully God and said with a great declaration that He is, in fact, the exact representation of God. And because of that stance, began to reject other writings that were not deemed to be accurate and authentic and were not canonized and were therefore not put into our Bibles today. So, firstborn emphasizes position or rank. He's not the first to be born. He's not the greatest of those who were created and born. It speaks of his position or of his rank. Now, in both Greek and Jewish culture, the firstborn had the right to the family inheritance. But he wasn't always the firstborn in the family. You remember Jacob and Esau, right? Jacob wasn't the firstborn, but he was given the birthright of inheritance. We also read in Exodus 4.22, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Now, Israel was not the first people to be born, right? They had lived in slavery in the nation of Egypt for over 400 years before God miraculously brought them out. And upon that exodus, He declared that you are my people. You are the firstborn, the position and the rank a people set apart for me and to worship me. Now, in the Psalms, we see that God was speaking of the eventual coming Messiah. We read this in Psalm 89, I also shall make Him, the Messiah, my firstborn, the highest of the kings on the earth. Now, the Messiah was not the first king, but He is the highest ranking or the king of the highest position. Revelation 1, verse 5, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to Him who loves us and released us from our sins by His blood. Jesus wasn't the first to be raised from the dead, chronologically, but He has the highest rank of all who will ever be raised from the dead. So this idea of chronology is not at all what the Bible talks about when it's speaking of the firstborn. Finally, in Romans chapter 8, we read these words, For those whom He, God the Father, foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be, Jesus, firstborn among many brethren. It's a position of rank. It's the highest rank. And that's what is connotated by the word, the the firstborn. Jesus is the firstborn in relation to the church. In every of these examples that we've looked at, the firstborn clearly states position or rank and not a chronological sequence. Jesus is not the firstborn of creation, meaning He was the first one created, but He is the first in position or rank, meaning this, that He rules over all creation. Now, as we go through this next verse here, we have seen that Paul has already stated that He, Jesus, is the exact representation of God the Father, 
So if he was a created being, it wouldn't make sense for Paul to make that declaration. To think that Jesus was a created being shreds the doctrine of the, of the Trinity because it would mean that Jesus is not coexistent with the Father. He is not co-eternal with the Father. The question is, is that if Jesus was created, when did that happen? The Bible speaks nothing about the creation of Jesus, but only that He and the Father and the Spirit have eternally coexisted in this miraculous description of the Trinity, the three being one. And what about this? What about Jesus being the only begotten of the Father as we looked at in John 1.14. If He is the only begotten, can He also be the first begotten? You see the difference there? Of course, the answer to that question is no. Jesus is sovereign over creation. He existed in time before creation. And He exists in rank above all creation, which is what firstborn means. And this is what Paul now begins to explain in greater detail as we look at the third statement here, that He is the Creator. He's not a part of creation. He's not involved in creation. He was not somebody who was consulted in creation. He is the Creator. Verses 16 and 17 read like this, For by Him, Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Now, not going through the book of Colossians from 1.1 and not doing any kind of introduction, the church in Colossae, in the region that Colossae was in, believed that Jesus was a part of the angelic rank and that He was not full deity. And so what Paul wants to make certain that his readers understand is that He is not some kind of angelic being who is still worthy of worship, but He is the Creator of everything, visible and invisible, and that would include whatever angelic hierarchy might exist. By the way, we can't say with certainty if there is an angelic hierarchy, but that was the common belief in first century Christianity. Now notice three things about the role that Jesus has as Creator in our verses. Letter A, it is created by Him. The entire universe, visible and invisible, was created by Him. Everything that we can see in this physical world is attributed to His creation. Everything that we cannot see is attributed to Him as the Creator. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says that God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world the writer of Hebrews, agreeing with the writings of Paul, affirming what John the Apostle says in 1.3, that all things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. See, when we read verses like this, we really have to ask ourselves these questions. Do I really believe that the Word of God is infallible and inerrant and is worthy of all of my faith in its accuracy? See, if we can say yes and we don't get hung up on trying to figure out exactly how this can be so, 
But many will not accept this as truth by faith and seek to challenge it and they question it in hopes that they can find some kind of a loophole to unexplain it and bring Christianity to its knees. Throughout all of Scripture, you find a consistent message is that Jesus is the creator of this world that he has entered into. This visible world that he has created is very obvious to us, and it is a vast expanse that we still can't fully explore. The great majority of our universe we will never, ever even be able to see or, or know that it's, it's even out there. It's kind of like living 5,000 years ago and only knowing the world that you could travel and see by foot. And then all of a sudden somebody creates an airplane and you travel all around the world and you go, my goodness, I never knew it was that big. That's exactly how it is with the vast physical, visible universe that Jesus has given credit to creating. Well, when we look at the vastness of this universe, as we look and see at all that has been made, you see, we have to, ask, have to ask ourselves this question. Who made it? Where did it come from? Was it a puddle? Was it a gas? Was, this, was there this magnanimous explosion? Where did all that come from? And how did it take place? Well, the answer to that question depends on who you ask, right? The Bible affirms that this visible, physical world that we live in is the same one who appeared in Bethlehem in a manger over 2,000 years ago. Now, the invisible world refers to the things that we cannot see, the spirit world, the thrones, the dominions, the rulers, the authorities. Each of these words carries with it a very specific spiritual connotation that speaks to the people of the day. It may refer to an angelic hierarchy that was assumed to be in place by the Colossians. We do know that angels exist. We do know that they were created by God. We know that they were created to worship Him. They were created to serve and to minister Him. And we also know that a portion of them rebelled against Him and were then expelled from heaven and had been cast into this invisible world all around our earth and has influence and impact on our lives today. We can get into that with a lot of speculation. But what we can say with great certainty is that Jesus is the creator of the invisible world that we cannot see. It was created by Him. Secondly, letter B, it was all created for Him. Everything was created for Christ. If Christ really created all things, then to whom should all of creation look to worship? That's an easy question to answer, isn't it? Because we have the answer to that question. If Jesus is the Creator, then He is the one to whom we look. He is the one that we are going to bow down and worship. We will not worship the created thing, but we will worship the one who has created all things. And oh my goodness, how does Christmas magnify our worship of all things physical. It's a travesty that many, many families with good intentions will get into debt for the next eight months because their celebration centered around the, phys around the physical, around the visible and the tangible. 
Those things that for a very short period of time bring some happiness and some newness to our life. All of creation exists for Him. All of creation is to serve His will, to bring glory to Him. All creation is moving towards Him either willingly as His servants or unwillingly as His enemies. Creation owes its existence to its Creator. Therefore, creation is to exalt the Creator, not that which has been created. Creation finds its end and its beginning in the person of Jesus Christ. The visible, physical world, the invisible, spiritual world, was all created by Him and for Him. And oh, by the way, you and I are a part of the physical world that He has created, and you and I are created for Him. We should never lose sight of that reality. Our lives are not to be about ourselves, but they are to be about Him. And I'll tell you as honestly as I know how, I'll fight that every day of my life because I'm still heavily influenced by a sinful, selfish nature that wants to run the show. We are created by Him and for Him. Let us see everything that has been created is held together in Him, by Him, for Him, and in Him. Not only did He create it all, but He is the glue that holds it all together. All the complexities of time and space, the laws of physics that govern our universe, the delicate balance of axes and angles and speed and timing and the energy that keeps everything going and this physical world that you and I know is all being held together in Him. Why don't you think about that? Think about the complexity of this physical world that we live in. I can't explain a lot of it to you, but I know that the earth is on a very specific tilt. It spins at a very specific speed and it orbits the sun at a very specific rate. And if you change any of those, by a slight percentage, life on earth could not exist. Have you ever seen the guy who spins 40 plates on a platform? And he runs frantically from one to the other and they slap it two or three times and one starts to wobble and he runs back over and slaps it a few times and it's just an exhausting performance to watch and go, man, that's amazing. I'm going to tell you, God is not running wild, holding it all together. He sits on His throne and says, I am sovereign over the world that I have created and it is held together in me. He never breaks a sweat. Never worries a bit. It is all held together in Him. Not only is He the ruler over all creation, number four, this same God is head of the church. First part of verse 18, He is also head of the body, the church. Now it's important that we understand that. Because it's it's important that we recognize that God is the ruler of all the world that He has created, but most specifically, God is, created, God is going to be the ruler over the creation of His body, the church. It goes beyond being head over the local church, but He is head over the universal church into which all believers are baptized at the instant of their salvation. The church has many metaphors in Scriptures. A family, a kingdom, a vineyard, a flock, 
a building, a bride, but here it's a body. There is an incredible interdependence that exists within the human body. Uh, Duke, Marjorie wasn't feeling good today. Duke had to leave early. Uh, He cut himself this week at his job. And I can guarantee you that he is incredibly aware of the cut that he has on the thumb. A very, very small percentage of his body is affecting everything he does. Miss Pam is going to have to have surgery not long on a foot that isn't doing what it's supposed to do. I can guarantee you every step she takes, very small part of her body not working like it should, reminds her of the interdependence of the body that she inhabits. The local church is the body of Christ and there is an incredible interdependency that exists within the lives that you and I live together in community but also the entire universal church that he is the head over. Head here isn't the figurative head of a company, not a CEO or a CFO, but he is the head of a living, breathing organism, the church. This idea is expressed in three ways. One, him being the head connotates the idea of life. You know, we know this, that a body cannot exist apart from its head. A head cannot live without the body. Without Christ as the head, the church does not exist. And without the body, Christ's life on earth would not be known because that is the mission of the church is to go and tell of this One who has come. Christ is made known through His body The church, those who are being conformed to His image, those who have been changed by this great gift of salvation. And as we go, we share this great reality with others. So it's the idea of life. Letter B, it's the idea of activity. The body acts, but the head gives its direction. All that the body does begins with the head. The body finds its purpose and its meaning, and its significance in the head who is Jesus Christ. Therefore, the body or the church must learn to more and more to acknowledge and to honor the head of Christ over the church, not as a figurative leader, but as the one to whom provides our life and directs our activity. Thirdly, letter C, this is the idea of control. The head is to rule and reign over the body. The body is to be controlled by the head. The body is, to, is, is not to act apart from the head. Now, I didn't grow up on a farm. I know Perry grew up on a farm. And some of you are familiar with farm life. And there's a very common expression, right? You're running around like a chicken with your head cut off, right? You've heard that? Have you ever seen that? Those that see it say, oh my goodness, I know exactly what that's like. Well, if we, the church, are disconnected from the head, Jesus Christ, we could be guilty of running around like a chicken with his head cut off, very, very busy, but not deriving life and direction from the head. The head of the church is Christ. He rules over it just like He does His universal creation. And the effectiveness of the church is going to be determined by how closely we walk with the one who rules over his church. Now, verse 18b. 
And He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. This is a bit of a repeat of the rank position discussion we've already had. Since He has created the church, He provides life for the church, directs its activity, and is to control it. He is to be the preeminent one of the church, just as He is in the universe. So you and I would very quickly agree, oh yeah, God is sovereign and He's on the throne and everything is under His control, but we must be able to say the same thing is true about our church, the body of Christ. If it is not so, then we've got to get right because we will never be and do what He has called us to do in our little corner of the world. Now, number five, the fifth description here. He is the fullness of God. Verse 19 says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. The fullness of what? It's the fullness of deity. It's implied based upon everything that Paul has already said. This verse is probably the most concise affirmative statement of the deity of Christ that we can find in our Bible. It's a summarizing statement of the previous verses and it leads us to the crescendo of Paul's main objective and that is to tell us who Jesus is. All that God is dwells in Jesus Christ. All that God is resides in Him, can be found in Him, and is at home in Jesus Christ. This was true before He came to earth. It was true the instant He arrived. It continues to be true all the way into eternity future. He is the perfect nature of the Father because He is co-eternal with the Father. He is the complete representation of the Father. And the fullness of the Father is found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. Now, this is really significant. Let me share with you why it is. It's significant because it means that God is the head of the church. It means that God is the beginning of the church. God is the one who came to earth, who died on the cross and arose from the dead. It means that God is the preeminent person of the universe and God in all His fullness dwells in Jesus Christ, the one and only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He is the fullness of God in His position, but He is also the fullness of God in His function. You can't separate the Father and the Son and the Spirit and what they do and in how they have affected what's been done. They are co-equal, co-eternal, and Jesus is the perfect representation of who God is. This final part, number six, is the most amazing, I think, that we're going to read. He is the reconciler. Verse 20, And through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross, through Him I say whether things on earth or things in heaven. He is the reconciler and everything will be reconciled back to Jesus Christ, both the visible and the invisible world. In the visible world, the redeemed will be reconciled to everlasting life, having found peace with God 
through the blood of Jesus the Reconciler. This created world that you and I inhabit will be reconciled back to Him at its culminating point in redemptive history and heaven will resume its place on earth. The unredeemed of this visible world will also be reconciled back to Him, but not for eternal joy, but instead for eternal judgment. As the unredeemed will be separated from Him for all of eternity. The invisible world will also be reconciled back to God. The fallen angels or the demons will be stripped of their power and of their influence in God's created world and will be relegated to an eternal punishment just as the lost of this world. What should never be lost in the observance and celebration of Christmas is the reality that His coming as God incarnate was the culmination of God's eternal plan of redemption. Jesus has brought us back to the Father through the redemptive work of the cross. And so the answer to our question, who is Jesus, is very simply this. He is the incomparable Christ. There's a pastor by the name of S.M. Lockridge. His given name was Shadrach Meshach Lockridge. If you remember several weeks ago, Pastor Greg preached about what's in a name. I think that man's destiny was decided for him when his parents named him Shadrach, Meshach, Lockridge. But he was a pastor. He preached for over 50 years. He passed away in the year 2000. And what is probably his most influential and most well-known sermon ever given in his 50-some years of ministry is, That's My King. And in it, he describes who this Jesus is. I've got a clip I'm going to play for you that will answer for us who is Jesus. Listen and enjoy and be encouraged. Define his limitless love. He's enduring the 